So there are times when our sermons are like broad in nature and other times when um, they're more personal um, to our church. And so today's sermon is more of that personal nature. But it's also important for me to say everything that I'm going to say today because if we're going to grow together as a church, it's important um, that you know the full picture, not just the things that you experience, but also the things that I experience, but also the things that the church experienced, so the whole church life. And since we're serving God and since this is where we get a chance to hang out, it's important that we talk about everything in these spaces. Um, so consciously or unconsciously, cultural norms influence our Christian identity. And our society encourages us to look within ourselves, but our natural tendency is to do what? Search for the external things to find this identity. And one of the first places that we often seek this identity is in our career. Am I right? Yeah. From a young age, we've already determined um, how much time and energy we'll invest into pursuing our careers. Um, I can't think of a day that I'm not you know, talking with our son about him being an entrepreneur and the things that he's going to accomplish by he turns 25. And so he has seven years to accomplish these things. And so every waking moment, he's looking at the things he wants to design, the, you know, what the films he wants to direct or produce, and photography and music, everything like a good entrepreneur, right? But this career can often be the defining characteristic of, of who we are. Life teaches that whatever career we're committed to, it takes up most of our time and attention. It is this career that eventually causes us to realize that financial success and status is important when defining our identity, our, our relationships, statuses, appearance, grades, Career reputation provides this sense of identity. Now, these may feel like good foundation because they're not evil. And society tells us that they're important. But the problem is that none of these things are permanent. Any of these things could change without warning. A sudden job loss could leave us questioning our choices in life. Um, one piece of gossip could destroy your reputation, even if it's untrue. Your appearance will change as you get older. If you're like me, you start getting gray hair and you just say, I'll stop plucking them one by one. They get too many, right? But God calls us to be part of something that is eternal and unchanging. God calls us to find our identity in him. But we find this true identity in our willingness to follow Jesus. In our text, uh, Jesus calls four fishermen to be fishers of men. We're going to be in Matthew 4. Um, they were viewed as uneducated, but there was something in their professional lives that could translate into kingdom impact. And it turns out that Jesus was right because his plan worked. The foundation Jesus created with these uneducated men has launched millions of pastors and teachers throughout church history. And what we're doing in this season of our church 
is to build a foundation that will outlast what we can see today. Um, to get started, um, I'm going to read a verse that I believe will summarize everything we'll say, Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, talking about Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, if we're called to be followers of Jesus, when we personalize this verse, we should not only get a glimpse of who we could become, but the full picture of who we're called to be. So I've personalized Matthew 4.23 to demonstrate what Jesus is calling us to do. I'm going to give you the personalized version, Matthew 4.23, Garfield's personalized version, right? And Garfield went throughout all Berkeley, teaching in their churches and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You could easily put your name in this place because there are some things that God is calling us to do, but we have to first see ourselves according to how God wants us to see ourselves. This is what Jesus desires for us. He wants us to follow him in proclaiming the gospel, healing diseases and every affliction by the power of his spirits. It's not in our own doing. Before we look at Jesus calling his disciples, I want to briefly look at how Jesus began his ministry. Matthew describes Jesus as the light that dawned in Galilee, and then that light extended to his disciples and then shined on many. So we are an extension of that light that dawned in Galilee. Let's read Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Can we stand read together? Is that okay? Like, ah, I see some of you said, I had my legs crossed and everything, and now I have to stand. Um, can we read together? Here we go. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun, and that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thank you. You may be seated. So you can see that Matthew is describing Jesus as this light that has dawned in Galilee. So we just read that Jesus went home to Galilee to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And this is actually a quote um, in Isaiah uh, 9, verses 1 to 2 talking about Zebulun and Galilee. But notice in verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Jesus waits until John is in prison before he begins his public ministry. So there is something that we can learn about the patience of Christ. He is God in the flesh. He has an assignment to fulfill but he understands the timing of his father, the timing of God. And as you know, we have 
several people who are transitioning from our church um, over the next few weeks. And we've been talking about this for a while, and I've been preparing for those who could be our next uh, group of leaders. I was meeting with someone who seemed like the logical choice to fill a minister role. I know it, and they know it. But I said to them, I want you to pray. I, I, I don't want you to just simply be the logical choice. But I want you to pray to see what God will have you do. And here's why. If you serve in an area where you're not called, you become an obstacle to the person who is called to serve in that area. Now, I'm not suggesting that this person is not called to serve in that needed area. Quite the opposite. I'm suggesting that God's church must become a place that relies on people who are called to serve and not simply the logical choice. Are you with me? Like, yes, maybe not. Now you might say, well, what if we don't have enough leaders? Sometimes the absence of something reveals the intended purpose of God. When I was in Florida, I've never done orchestrations before but the music director transitioned, and I became the default person um, to composing music. Never done it before, but I spent the next three years composing probably five to six songs for the orchestra every week. I also grew the orchestra from seven people to almost 30 people in less than a year. The absence of the music director revealed God's intended purpose for me as a composer and director. John the Baptist was called by God to pave the way for Jesus as part of God's intended purpose. But it's in John's absence that the public ministry of Jesus is revealed. I want you to look at what happened when Jesus began his public ministry in verse 17. From that time... Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Now, I want you to look at John the Baptist's personal ministry, Matthew 3, verses 1 to 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that Jesus preaches the same message as John the Baptist. The Son of God submits to a mission that was greater than himself so that we could become partakers of the same mission. I've had about, you know, two or three people asking, when are you going to invite guest speakers? Once you have three people, you know you really have ten people. It's really the numbers game, right? Yes? Mm. Well, I've never stopped inviting guest speakers. Um, everything's about availability and, of course, them being a good fit for our church. But if I don't develop teachers in this church, how will people become partakers of the mission God is calling us to fulfill? Obviously, I don't plan to teach every Sunday because I do have 
my scheduled vacation. I have a trip to Jamaica coming up, and I do plan to go. But I also don't plan to give everyone the mic to preach because they feel they have something to say. If there's a calling in someone's life, then we create space that the, so that the gift can be developed. This is a sacred space because people's spiritual lives are in the balance, which also means that if someone's heart posture is not right, even the greatest uh, teacher won't be scheduled to teach. With that being said, I've been meeting with several pastors and leaders who we're scheduling throughout the year, so you'll get a chance to see people coming in. Don't worry, they just aren't available right now, that's all. But the first thing Jesus did when he began his ministry was to find people to empower, and that's what we're doing this season. Look at what happens in Matthew 4, 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here we find uh, Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, and 680 uh, feet below sea level. And you have this active fishing trade for Capernaum and eight other cities. Jesus is casually walking along these um, 13 miles. I know some of you guys like to walk. Um, heard this story of Darren doing this long walk, and I won't tell you where he walked to, but Darren loves to walk. Good exercise. But Jesus sees this brother, he calls them, but understand the significance of Jesus choosing his disciples. In Judaism, it was normally the disciples who chose their rabbi. But in this case, Jesus chose his disciples, so he's already breaking the norm. When you survey the New Testament, there are many references of God calling people to himself through Jesus. After all, this is why Jesus came to die for our sins, because God is calling us to himself. But notice who initiates the calling process in our text. Jesus. The four men whom Jesus called were working. They were focusing on their nets. When Jesus saw them and he called them. Now I find it interesting that Jesus could have called more skillful people or the ones who didn't have a job and yet he chose the ones who were already preoccupied with life. Now you have a family, a busy schedule, and yet Jesus calls you. You're like, why me? Why not call somebody else? That's because Jesus calls those who are willing to follow him. Jesus wasn't looking for the most talented disciples. He started with commercial fishermen who were not the smartest people at the time. No offense if you're a fisherman here. 
But Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. If Jesus was searching for the most talented people, then we're suggesting that he's disqualifying or rejecting the untalented people. But that is not the character of God. He starts with ordinary people who are willing, and then he equips them. So I was leading an orchestra, though I've never done it before. That willingness turned into fruitfulness and three years of composing more than 50 orchestral pieces. When we're willing to follow Jesus, he takes what we're willing to offer and use it to change the people around us. That's just what happens. Many of you who have been leading college ministry, you say, I've never done this before. And after a few hiccups, all of a sudden you become a pro. God uses that willingness, takes what you're willing to offer, and use it to change the lives of people around you. So now you went from someone that would have been disqualified, except that now you're saying, God, I'm, I'm available. He uses you. And now hundreds of people are leaving, feeling like they've been empowered by you. But what do you do when culture teaches that our willingness is not enough to influence change? We take personality tests, assessments, and countless activities because we're now in an identity crisis. Have you guys ever taken all these different tests to see where you are? Oh, man, I have so many emails. And after you do this one test, they start sending like, unsubscribe. And every job you go to wants another one, right? And then all of a sudden, your boss have this cool idea and say, hey, why don't you take this other test? And where are you in the Enneagram and your disk and you all kind of stuff? Before you know, we're just a bunch of letters. If we face rejection in any era of our lives, we search for the next thing to tell us who we are, where we belong, and how we relate to others. Now, here's a moment of transparency. Because I want you to realize that some of the fears that you have, I have. Some of the challenges that you experience in your daily lives, I experience them. I'm not exempt because I'm a pastor. And it's important for us to have these honest conversations so that you know that we're on this journey together. So often we kind of project the perfect life, but sometimes we need to understand that we're in this journey together. Now, one of the reasons I have so many degrees is that for many years, God would place me in different positions and I would become fearful that someone who was more qualified would disqualify me from that position. So every position that I've ever held in the church or in the marketplace, I have a degree to show for it. And it is true. When I became executive pastor here, what's the first thing I did? I went and got a degree got a degree in business to ensure that there was no reason to disqualify me academically from my position. Now, before you cast judgment that education is an idol, I want you to understand the life that I balance 
which created this fear. Now, what I'm about to share might be sensitive for some of you, but we'll be okay. When you see me from afar, you'll say, oh, he's an African-American. And we all know there's cultural stereotypes that comes with being African-American. And I know we could say the same for different ethnicities, but I'm making a point. Follow me. Secondly, if I speak long enough, you'd recognize that I have an accent. That's because I'm an immigrant. Unfortunately, there's also a cultural stereotype with being an immigrant. So we have these two cultural narratives that I navigate in my personal and daily lives. Those two can be a handful, and I know some of you probably experienced some of those things before. Now, I was sharing with BJ on Wednesday, right after you left, Adam. I feel like Adam is at upper room more than I am. Jeez. I'm like, Adam, we just need to give you a key and everything. Just stay there. I feel like Adam even have more meetings than I do. We walk in, Adam's like, I just had dinner with so-and-so. Or I just had lunch with so-and-so. I'm like, man, like, save some for me. But I was sharing with BJ on Wednesday that a pastor who is very familiar with this church, here's what they said to me. So I just said to you about these cultural narratives that I navigate. Here's what the pastor said to me. The only reason a non-Asian is pastoring that church is because they don't want anything to change. And I quote, us Asians would prefer another Asian pastor. Don't worry, it's not Pastor Albert. <laughs> I looked at the things that we have accomplished and realized, well, that's not our church. But don't get me wrong, because I've also had people come to my home and tell me and my wife how we should pastor this church because we're not Asians. When you face these cultural narratives, it can easily create an identity crisis. So it's important for us to first recognize and embrace our identity in Christ. Because if we don't recognize this identity in Christ, when things happen in our lives, we are easily swayed. Now, I believe that I'm not pastoring a church that is driven by ethnicity or personality. I also believe that we are a church that desires to follow Jesus. Am I right? These four men were uneducated, these fishermen. There was nothing special about what they initially had to offer. But when they preached through the power of God, people recognized that they had been with Jesus. These uneducated fishermen know what it's like to sit all night in a boat with nothing to show for it. That's who Jesus chose. People who won't give up when they don't catch fish. You might not feel like you're the most logical 
choice to serve or even lead a ministry. That's not Jesus' concern. He just wants to know, do you have anything to offer and are you willing to submit those things to him? That's what he wants to know. So Jesus calls those who are willing to follow him. And then Jesus initiates the call and the discipleship process. Notice that the disciples did not go seeking Jesus. They were in the middle of working their jobs. Jesus sought them. Jesus said, follow me. Imagine if Jesus said, I know that you're uneducated, but since you're willing, I want you to be a placeholder until I find someone better. Jesus understood that there are going to be moments in our lives when we might feel insignificant. So he gave us a reminder, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So it's not about us and our insecurities. It's about Jesus. He calls us to follow him. He has chosen us to be his disciples. Uh, Robert Kelly talks about this idea of followership. It's a real word. He, he defines followership as the willingness to cooperate in working towards the accomplishment of the group mission, to demonstrate a high degree of teamwork, and to build cohesion among the group. But Kelly didn't stop there. He continued by suggesting that followers have two intersecting dimensions, independent or critical thinking, which is the ability to think for themselves, give constructive criticism, are their own person, and are innovative and creative. Do we have any creative people here? You're telling me that we have no creative people inside the room. Everyone's looking around at somebody else. <laughs> Kelly also talks about active engagement, the inclination to take initiative, assume ownership, participate actively, are self-starters, and go above and beyond the job. Now, we have a lot of active engagers in this church. You know, got to figure out how to uh -huh. <laughs> give someone um, a project, and you have about six different groups going on right away, right? Like, slow down. No, 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 slow down. But understanding these two dimensions of followership helps us to understand why Jesus promoted leadership in the way he did. Jesus did not promote leadership the way we envision leadership. We, we view leadership as an idealized influence. We say leadership is influence because we're looking for a person who will stimulate or inspire people to follow. But Jesus said in, Matthew, in Mark 10, 43-44, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The idea is obviously different from our current uh, concept of influence because we view leaders as someone that we hate, someone who takes control. I'm not messing around. I'm just messing with this. I'm not saying you hate 
be leaders. I'm just saying. We don't like people who are control freaks, right? You guys like control freaks? I'm not talking about you, Erin. <laughs> no, she was pointing at her. She's like, no. So don't think I'm calling her out, all right? I like having interaction. But since we're working towards accomplishing a group mission, we're advancing the kingdom of God. I found something interesting in the text is that Jesus places the burden of leadership not on the person who is leading, but on the person who is following. Here's the interesting thing about Jesus calling these disciples. He didn't tell them where he was going. He simply said, follow me. Notice that Jesus places the burden on these men. If Jesus had to explain the process, then his leadership would be based on them knowing instead of them following. It's easy to identify when leadership dynamics change between two people, and this is common within most homes. As a child gets older, the leadership dynamics change. I would know it's changed. Because before you would say, hey, come with me over here. Then as they get older, they say, why? Before it would change when they're 16 and 17. Now we have two-year-olds saying, why? We have the background of Jesus' ministry because we have access to the Old and New Testament. But all these disciples had were two words, follow me. How are you doing when it comes to following Jesus? Are you waiting for the details? Because Jesus is placing the burden of, or the responsibility on you to follow without having the details. You see, he doesn't want us to have our commitment to him based on this contingent of, you know, if you tell me, then I'll go. So Jesus calls us to follow him immediately. Listen to what the disciples did. Matthew 4, 20 and 22. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 22. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Peter and Andrew left their nets and their business and followed Jesus. James and John left their father and their business to follow Jesus. We all have something that we hold on to. What are you willing to leave behind to follow Jesus? So being a follower of Jesus means that we have to order our lives around three primary purposes. The first one is being with Jesus. John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Being with Jesus is a relationship of intimacy. See, we develop this relationship by reading about Jesus in our word. We worship him, we serve others, and we follow his teachings. So the first purpose is being with Jesus. The second purpose is becoming like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So as followers of Christ, we are renewed in our knowledge about God according to Colossians 3.10. But as we grow in our faith, we are transformed into the image of God. In Genesis 1, we're already created in God's image, but sin separated us from God. When we become a Christian, we receive the Spirit of God, and if we submit our lives accordingly, day by day, we're transformed into becoming, or being transformed into becoming like Jesus. The third purpose is doing what Jesus says. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, we know this as, as what? The Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, when we think of the Great com uh, Commission, we all love the teaching part of the command, but rarely do we go. Think about the fact that we had to postpone a baptism because no one signed up to be baptized. Now, I felt convicted because I found it hard to believe that everyone living in Berkeley is a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if there are lost souls in Berkeley, what are we going to do so that they can hear the gospel? I wrote some practical questions and statements for all of us to consider because I considered them first, so I feel like it's just fair to share them with you. When was the last time we invited families or young adults to our church compared to why don't we have more families or young adults in our church? See how we ask the questions, but how do we respond? When was the last time we invited our neighbor to church? When was the last time we invited an atheist to church? Anyone ever invited an atheist to church before? A few of you. Uh, Francisca Perez Herrero says this. The Great Commission does not mean to present or offer only a message, but rather to lead to a close personal relationship modeled on the relationship between the earth of Jesus and his own disciples. Jesus wants us to be active followers. I know we're active engagers. We do the different things, but he wants us to also be active followers. Sometimes we lose our focus on what's most important in our lives. When I talk about losing focus, I'm talking about no longer paying attention to the details that matters. For example, your plan was to wake up in the morning, have breakfast, have your devotions, do whatever you believe will make your life better for that day. But instead, you checked your emails, your DMs, or social media. You found this funny video that you can't stop watching, can't stop sharing. You can ask my wife, her inbox is flooded with those videos. Maybe you even found yourself fixated on an argument that you had the previous day. And before you know it, your carefully planned day with Jesus is focused on how to curve your anxiety for the day. We often lose focus on the reality 
that people are the most important part of any society, we might say that we prioritize people. But do we prioritize all people? If you closed your eyes, would it matter who received your kindness? In other words, do your natural senses dictate your compassion for God's people? No, in other words, do you, if someone looks a certain way, do you invite them to your home? Or if they smell a certain way, do you invite them to drive in your car? See, all of us know someone who is not a part of any church. What are we going to do to connect those people with Jesus? Obviously, the simplest way is to invite them to church. But with this invitation, we must be ready to receive them as a church. We must be ready to close our eyes and offer kindness to whomever touches our hand. Our, our hand. You know, I've been considering, when did the church get so sophisticated that an ordinary person can't simply walk through our doors and get connected to a Christian community? Have you ever thought about that? I consider that all the time. Is it possible that we're so focused on the teaching dimension of the Great Commission that we forget about going and making the disciples. See, we are the ones that God has entrusted to invite others to hear his word and experience community. In one sense, we invite others to experience God by using our words. But scripture also teaches that we are the ones that are entrusted to live a godly life so others can glorify our Father, which is in heaven. All of us have an assignment to fulfill the Great Commission. Understanding that Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him, I have an application for us this week. I first want us to contemplate your call to discipleship. In other words, are you a follower of Jesus? And what does that mean to you? That's what you're contemplating. If you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, what does it mean? The second thing is to contemplate who you will commit to developing in discipleship. Let me give you a hint. The people that Jesus is calling us to disciple according to the Great Commission might not be in this room. There are people who have not yet accepted Christ in their hearts. Those are the people that Jesus is calling us to disciple. Can you imagine if all of us in this room developed one disciple this year, just one. In closing, 400 years had passed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God had not sent a prophet. Then suddenly, John the Baptist came on the scene and is preaching, preparing the way of the Lord. Jesus prepared for his ministry by submitting to the baptism in the Jordan, and then he was tempted in the wilderness. But now the time had come for him to begin his earthly ministry. And Matthew says it was like 
a light that dawned in darkness. That's what Matthew started out by saying, Matthew 4. There is still plenty of darkness in our world. But Jesus is this light that dispels this darkness. That light began in Galilee, and it continues to spread around the world. How? Jesus calls all of us, calls all of us to join him in his mission. He says, follow me. That's what he says. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, we have the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the good news that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, this is what they need to hear. People are lost in darkness and they need Jesus. The question is, will you do your part to spread that light? Will you do your part to be the light? Now I'm going to ask us to make a commitment, and the answer might not come today. Here's the commitment that I'm going to ask. And I know you guys don't like putting your hands up, but I'm going to ask for a reason. For those of you who are, who are Christians in the room, can I see your hands? If you are a Christian, you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus. Okay, good. I want us to commit to finding one person before this year is over to disciple to the ways of Christ. One person. Now, from the same group, I'm going to ask you to make a bold, you know, commitment. How many of you will say, I'm willing to commit to finding one unsaved person to disciple this year? Not tomorrow, but this year. Can I see your hands? If you're willing to do it. See, this is what Jesus wants us to do. So often we look inwardly. We look inside the church walls. We get through the church doors and we're comfortable. You know, we want to have the deep word and we get it all. But Jesus is saying, no. I just want to know if you can be like those four fishermen, not having all the details, not having all the answers, not knowing all these great things about theology, but he's saying, I'm willing to follow Jesus. And if we can do that, that's how we advance the kingdom. It's not by knowing all we can about the Word of God. It's actually by sharing the Word of God, sharing what you know, saying, Jesus, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing. I'm willing to follow you without knowing all the details. That's what he wants for our lives. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is an opportunity for you. An opportunity for you to surrender your lives to him. Surrender your heart to him. He wants you to be a part of the body of Christ. Jesus died on the cross so we can experience forgiveness of sins. And today is your opportunity. We're all here as one body, but we're all on this one journey, following Jesus. Some days are better than the others, but we're all following Jesus together. That's what he desires for all our lives. I want to pray for you, pray for all of us. Lord, I just come asking you on behalf of the one who doesn't have a relationship with you, 
might not be a Christian here today, I pray, God, that you will touch their hearts so they can experience you in a fresh way, surrendering their lives to you wholeheartedly. I pray, God, for all of us here, Lord, we're not perfect by any means, but you've never asked us for perfection. You've just asked us to be willing, yielded vessels to you, and that's what we desire to do. So I pray, God, that with the willingness of us offering our lives, that you will use us to impact the lives of people around us. I pray that you will be with us in all that we do, that you remain the center of all that we do, and that we continue to trust you and, and be like those fishermen who are saying, I'm willing to prioritize you in my life, just to drop everything and do whatever you say. I pray that your will will be done in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.